0: The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free.
1: We're uh, doing our best efforts to try and uh, bring awareness to the parole board that uh, hopefully we have some people that have some common sense and uh, do not take a, a hardness a situation and try and uh, you know, dwell on it to give the offender all the rights in the world of uh, free pass.
0: Don Edwards, the former Team Tana, goaltender with us yesterday. Uh, Don's parents murdered by George Levy in 1991. And we were talking with Don about the parole board's decision to not hold an in-person parole hearing for Levy, who's already out five days through the week. He has his own apartment. Where's he got the money? He's never had a job. And that's one of the questions the Edwards family's asking. Where's he get the money? Who's paying for all of this? We are, I suppose, And so they've decided there's not going to be an in-person parole hearing. It can't be because of the pandemic because the pandemic's over. So why is there a virtual parole hearing, and uh, Don and tennis Edwards are concerned, and rightly so, it could be because. The parole boards made up their mind to extend the privileges and the parole opportunities for one George Lovey, convicted multiple first-degree murderer. Mm-hmm. Don't be surprised if it happens. December the 8th is the virtual parole hearing, and I am going to be part of that virtually as well. I'll be paying very close attention to what is said. Justice in Canada. Also this week, the Supreme Court has decided it's not going to hear appeals of four Canadians, possibly, likely, as I said earlier, former members of ISIS, in the custody of Kurdish forces. These four Canadians are calling for Canada's assistance to bring them home. One individual is Jack Letts, who never really lived in Canada, but his father is Canadian and the family lives in the UK. The British government has rescinded Jack Letts' UK citizenship. His only citizenship is now Canadian. John Letts, Jack Letts' dad, was a guest on our program several times, unless the guys in the studio, Tom and Matt, grab that clip. Sent you an email the other day. Grab that clip of John Letts. I want to play it in just a bit. Um, Mr. Letts doubts that his son ever joined ISIS, even though he lived in Raqqa, which was the headquarters. For ISIS. Mr. Trudeau, um, this is interesting, Mr. Trudeau said not, well, a couple of years ago, about these ISIS individuals coming back here, we know that actually someone who has engaged, I'm quoting directly, we know that actually someone who has engaged and turned away that hateful ideology can be extraordinarily powerful voice for preventing radicalization in future generations and younger people in the community, you know it really is Alice in Wonderland. It really is a jury in London, Ontario, has found Nathaniel Veltman of London guilty of four counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of a Muslim family in the city, and on and on, the justice stories go, and he'll have a he'll have a parole opportunity. Probably, you know, when he's in his late 40s. My good friend, and I've said many times what I know about Canadian justice, I've learned from him. Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. Scott was a Senior Policy Advisor to a Federal Public Safety Minister and Co-Chair of the Office for Victims of Crime in the province of Ontario. Where do we start? Scott, where do we start? Which one?
1: Well, um, I think there's so many this week, eh? I mean, uh, the ones that you've listed, but as well, the revelation that that uh, uh, child uh, abductor, Randall Hopley...
0: Oh, right. Randall Hopley, uh, yes, of course. uh,
1: ...you know, was released. And um, even though he was deemed to be a long-term offender, and he violated the conditions of his release when he... uh, Took off from the halfway house that he was supposedly in, and he went to a, uh, a library uh, and was on the computer, which he wasn't supposed to be, and he was in the company of children, and so he was arrested for that, and he was brought to court, and that is a violating the conditions of a long-term offender order is actually a crime uh, in Canada. You can get up to ten years for it. But uh, so he's charged with those offenses, and they uh, take him to court. And, uh, you know, in a normal court proceeding, uh, he is uh, granted bail. But guess what? He's not put into even a remand center. They put him back into the the same uh, Correctional Service of Canada uh, community facility. And a matter of uh, weeks later, he takes off again, and this time he cuts off his ankle bracelet that he's uh, wearing to, uh, to be monitored, and he goes missing again. And uh, it's, I think it was about 10 days that he was gone before they caught him, uh, and he's back in custody. And that this, this guy's case, uh, and I sent you an article that I had written about it uh, years ago, this guy's case just demonstrates what you were describing which is the, you know, look the other way, disconnect within our criminal justice system. And um, I've, that's why I was glad, again, to see that the B.C. Premier Eby has said, like, what the hell is going on here? I want to know the facts about all of this stuff. And uh, that's something that I think is extremely important, and including something as, it's not so much a legal system, but, you know, they obviously didn't, have the right technology for the electronic monitoring because, and I know this because I help a company that's got this modernized technology, that if you try to, it's called a tough cuff, and if you try to cut it off, it's very difficult to do, and it also, as soon as you start, it sets off an alarm. But guess what? They weren't using that technology. They were using something that was, you know, not anywhere near as sophisticated, so he was able to cut it off. I think this is very much a case that it's uh, worthwhile keeping an eye on to see what happens because, as I put it at the end of the article when I was describing how he'd been released early, and it's because of the absurdity of the, you know, uh, uh, different procedural provisions within our criminal code that this guy was released, frankly, earlier than what supposedly we all thought he was uh, going to be serving. But it's a story. Scott, it's a story. It's a story. It's a
0: story that's replayed itself over and over. This is the latest latest installment.
1: Yes. And that's, I think, what the real point is, based on what I've seen in the charges. He's got a series of charges for breaching the long term offender order. And uh, those are uh, criminal offenses that you can get up to 10 years on. Okay. plus a count of uh, failing to appear under Section 145 of the criminal code. You can get up to two years. So you've got two instances of this guy doing it. I'm going to suggest that, just in case the Crown's listening, why don't we get two 10-year consecutive sentences and a one-year consecutive sentence on the failing to appear? And we won't have to hear about him or think about him for another 21 years.
0: Well, now, think about this, and you're so familiar with this. We talked with Don Edwards yesterday. And I've been working with the Edwards family since 1991 when George Lovey murdered Don's parents. And uh, so now the parole board has already granted Lovey two first-degree murder convictions, sexual assault of of, uh, Don's sister. Uh, So now he's out. He has his own apartment. He's at his own apartment four or five nights a week. And now he wants absolutely no restrictions, and the parole board yeah, says. Parole. You, yeah. tell me, you tell me about this. What, what are your thoughts on this? There was supposed to be, there was scheduled, scheduled, uh, an in person parole hearing about Levy's request for total parole freedom. And suddenly, the National Parole Board, or the parole, I don't know what they, what they call themselves now National Parole Board, Parole Board of Canada, whatever, they, they decide arbitrarily that they're going to change. Not only the venue, but the delivery—it's now virtual. Yeah, not in person. And Don said yesterday, and uh, he said Tannis is concerned, his wife is concerned, that they've already made up their minds that Lovey's going to get everything he asks for. They just don't want to do it with the Edwards family in person at the hearing. What do you think?
1: Uh, yes, there's a saying that we develop for that uh, reality—a sad reality. But it's uh, no news is good news, and that I think I completely agree. I think that that is exactly the case. That I'm sure the board hasn't, you know, formally made a decision, but um, it is way, way too closely connected, in my experience, with Correctional Services of Canada. And um, I had friends that were on the parole board years ago and they were absolutely baffled. They used to have what they called uh, reconciliation meetings to make sure that the Correctional Service of Canada and the Parole Board's decisions were in conformity with each other. So I, I, frankly, I agree. I think that's exactly what this sounds like, that the board has already decided that they're gonna move in this particular direction and the less attention paid to this is what they want.
0: You know what it makes me think about? and you and I have talked about this on the air many times, because it happened on the air. You were on the air with me. Correctional Service Canada. Interview with a rep from CSC. And the rep from CSC said, in answer to a question I had about how the rights that you have in, in prison and who is in a prison in Canada's justice system reality, that rep said something about the rest of us. Do you remember what it was?
1: I believe you're referring to his uh, description of uh, uh, Canadians as uh, uh, non-offenders living in the community.
0: Non-convicted individuals living yeah. in the community. Like, and I just, just about fell out of my chair.
1: Yeah, I know. Well, you know, that, that's the reality that I, I think we made some progress over the years. In, we did. You know, getting some, uh, some changes. But I'm, as you and I have discussed, I think it's creeping back the same we know best about everything yeah. and, you know, we'll decide what we're
0: going to do. All right. So, the Supreme Court is not going to hear the appeals of four Canadians, maybe former members of ISIS, in the custody of Kurdish forces now. And they're calling on Canada's assistance to bring them home. One of them is, as I said earlier, Jack Letts, who never lived in Canada, but his father's Canadian. And uh, the family lives in the U.K. The British government rescinded Jack Letts' U.K. citizenship. But Mr. Letts, senior, John, was a guest on my program on a number of occasions. Here's something of what he said.
1: I can tell you that the whole story of of Jihadi Jack started when the journalist... Claimed in the Sunday paper in the U.K. that he called us and joined and, and said he joined ISIS and he was the first white boy to join ISIS. That was an invention. It's a, it was an invention. But once you get it out there in the media, you know the way fake news works, and, and we all fall for it. And it's just snowballed, and nobody is giving us a chance to counter that. And because we're gagged because of this, uh, for having been arrested for trying to help him get out, the way this has been twisted, we can't speak about it. So as long as Jack stays in custody, the truth is not going to come out.
0: Well, he's in custody of the of the Kurds, and the Supreme Court of Canada says we're not going to intervene. Now, John Letts, and I've said this to you before, Scott, the dad, he's a dad who loves his son and he wants the best he wants the best for his son I I get it I have got nothing against John Letts a lot of questions though about Jack who lived in Raqqa how do you live in Raqqa the capital for the ISIS murder clan um, without being one of them how how does that happen anyway so what are your what are your thoughts on the Supreme Court of Canada's decision they're not going to hear the appeals of these four Canadians to be brought back
1: here well well frankly i'm not really that surprised Um, there's there's two different issues here one is the legal issue uh... which the uh... supreme court has just ruled on and the uh, other one however that i think is more important is if you will, what i would call the strategic policy decision which is not the responsibility of the court But for the government of Canada to say, hey, you know, is it in our best interest strategically that we bring this guy back so we've got some control over him? But the focus of this has been uh, on that as a charter challenge. And just so your listeners are clear, uh, the argument is that Section 6 of the charter, which says every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada... That was the argument that was being used at the Supreme Court. And as the uh, Court of Appeal had previously uh, ruled, and the federal government argued, was that uh, there was no... That may be the case, but there is no legal obligation for the uh, government of Canada to um, actually take steps to repatriate the individual. Their specific filing was uh federal court of appeal applied settled principles of law and charter interpretation to unchallenged findings of fact the government said especially when there is no participation by canada in the detention of a canadian citizen in a foreign country there is there can be no obligation under the canadian charter of rights and freedoms for canada to secure the release and affect the repatriation okay and you and i've discussed this years ago when this came out and i did some digging into it and did some research on things And um, I think the real point that people should be asking themselves is, okay, you know, look, the Supreme Court has said that there's not a legal right, but does it make sense for Canada and Canadian security? What's the better course of action? Do we just leave these people in these camps and potentially, you know, God knows what's going to happen to them and if they end up coming back to Canada? Or do we take advantage of the leverage that we've got over them right now Okay, and there's all sorts of legal things that we could actually do. Whether it's having the locals prosecute them, and then we could bring them back under the extradition act or international transfer offenders act. You, we could put all sorts of conditions on them. You've seen that with the um, uh, the the uh, uh, jihadi wives who've been brought back.
0: Yeah, and then, so then we give them ten million bucks, like Trudeau did for
1: the, the point of this thing was just so ridiculous when it first sort of hit the headlines, and it was, you know, it was, oh, no, it's too dangerous, we can't go over there, we can't interview them, we can't do anything, you know, and then it was uh, Stuart Bell from uh, Global News who put together a team, and <laughs> they went over yeah, and did exactly. all the interviews that supposedly our officials
0: could. Great investigative journalist, Stuart. I'm
1: sorry I didn't hear
0: you. He's a great investigative journalist. Oh, I, yeah. I, I have, oh, I have yeah to, Scotty, I have to stop here. You know how it goes. No problems. Thanks so much for the time always. Thanks. All right. Scott. Bye-bye. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.